0: there. Welcome to Hunt, Gather, Talk. I'm your host, Hank Shaw, and today we're going to answer some questions. One of the things I pride myself on is answering everybody's questions. So if you ask me a question via social media or via email or even in person, I'm going to do my damnedest to answer it. You know, I, don't, I may not know all of the answers, but I usually know where I can find them. What kind of questions do you ask? You have no idea. My, my inbox is like this weird, crazy quilt of just bizarreness. I get questions from all kinds of places and all kinds of topics. I, everything from, like, what do I do with a deer spleen, to my ducks taste like liver, to, hey, I just ate this mushroom, and uh, am I going to die? I, literally, I've had that question. So anything goes... Uh, there are no stupid questions, except for, you know, if I just answer the question you ask it again, you didn't listen to me, and then that's kind of stupid. I'm going to pick questions every week, and I'm going to vary them depending on the hunting and angling and gardening and foraging and all that kind of stuff. So there will be a little something for everybody, and so it will not be just game and fish, and it will be mushrooms and wild plants and all sorts of stuff. So here we go. The first question I got, and I got this actually several times this week, was about hanging game birds, and specifically big game birds. I got a few people asking me questions about Canada geese, and I got a few other people asking me questions about turkeys, because both are in season right now. And the short answer is yes, you can hang either one of them. But it's a little bit tricky. It's an, in fact, it's a little bit trickier than hanging a regular duck or, say, a pheasant. The reason is because the goose or the turkey is a very large animal. And just as you would not hang a deer in the carcass uh, whole, you would not hang a turkey or a goose completely whole. If in the case of a deer, what you do is you just, you know, you gut it and you skin it and you hang it in a locker. In the case of a turkey or a goose what you end up doing is eviscerating it first. So yeah, you actually do take the guts out of these larger animals before you hang them to age them. The reason is because they're so large that they retain their heat very, very long time. And a goose has the added problem of down. And anybody knows that goose down is an incredible insulator. So a big 12, 14, 15-pound Canada goose That's going to retain an enormous amount of heat long enough so that the interior of that goose is going to start to rot and nobody wants that. So the trick is just to do this. You bring your turkey home or you bring your goose home and, you know, make the slit by the anal vent, just as you normally would. Reach in and grab all of those guts and, you know, save the giblets if they're not shot up because giblets are delicious. Remember that. More on that later and then what i would do is i would take a bunch of paper towels and i would wipe out the interior of that cavity so there's no more blood and it's pretty dry water is your enemy at this point don't hose it out don't wash it out the only exception to that is if you have gut shot it so if the if the intestines are all blown up and it's just and it's quite frankly shitty inside uh then yes uh use a wet paper towel and wipe everything clean And then dry paper towels to dry everything off. You need to make sure that when you're about to hang it, it is cool and dry. So my trick is, once the interior of those birds are completely cored out, essentially, uh, I stuff one or maybe two paper towels in there just so that it will be cool and it will collect any juices or blood that accumulate as the bird is hanging. And then you can hang either a turkey or a goose for as many as five or six or seven or eight days. Well, what temperature would you do this at? Well, you kind of want to do this cold. Not so cold as when you're hanging beef, but you're talking about 50 degrees, 45 degrees. A little bit warmer than a refrigerator, but a little bit cooler than you would, say, a grouse or a pheasant. Generally, I do it in a refrigerator that is set for the purpose. Uh, I have a temperature control gauge, the kind you get at a beer shop to store beer. And then you just hang them up there. I hang them by the necks. Uh, The reason I do that is because they've been eviscerated. Anything that's going to drip is going to drip out of the bird and really actually drip into those paper towels. I like to check those paper towels every day or sometimes twice a day in the very beginning because you want to keep them dry. If the paper towels get soaked with blood or whatever, you want to remove them and replace them with something different. After a couple days, uh, you will see the bird will start to be a little bit more limp. It will have gone through rigor and then the enzymes that are present in the meat will continue to work. And what that does and why we're doing this in the first place is to heighten the flavor of the meat. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is older turkeys or older geese can be very, very tough. Geese can live for 30 years. Turkeys can live for a dozen years or more. When you think about that, anything you buy in the store is never going to be older than a few months. No goose is older than six months. Same thing with a turkey. They're slaughtered young, and young animals are naturally tender. Old animals are naturally tough. It's the same thing with people. So this aging process, the enzymes, help the meat break down. It dries it out a little bit, so you lose a little bit of water weight, and it heightens the flavor. And then what happens is you get a much more tender bird that tastes more of itself. Now, you can take it a little farther and age it five days, seven days, ten days, two weeks. Once you start to get past really five days or so, you're going into a realm that is closer to dry aging beef. And there you're going to be getting a little bit more sporty. The flavor is going to get a little bit what they call high, what high means is sort of pungent, and it will smell not great, uh, a little cheesy, and it's just an acquired taste. Would I do it with a turkey? Maybe, but I, I like a healthy five days. What that does is it gives you tender meat. It's not real pungent. It's just a better turkey or a better goose. After that, though, you do have the uh, dubious pleasure of plucking an aged bird. The good news is that an aged bird plucks very easily. If you try to pluck a goose the day of, or even worse, the day after you've shot it, it's a bear to pluck unless you have a paraffin wax setup. Now, you can't do a paraffin wax setup with a goose because you have already opened it up. It's already been gutted. The, the goose has got a hole in it, essentially. And if you try to wax it, it's just not going to work. So you have to dry pluck anything that you've hung like this. Not that big a deal if they've hung for five or six days because the feathers will now come out a lot easier. The problem is they're big birds. And if you've got four or five or six of them, you're in for a lot of work. My advice, feel around, look for where they've been shot. And if they are in good shape, you know, the ones that you've really well shot, maybe you headshot them, maybe you just wing shot them. Those are the ones to take the time to pluck. If, say, there's a bunch of shot in the breast or you've blown up a couple wings or the legs broken, skin those. Save the hard work for the biggest payoff. That's my way. I had a question the other day from a a woman I had met actually at a bar, weirdly enough. And This is what I mean when you get this weirdest origins of like everybody, oh, you do this. Let me ask you this crazy ass question that I've never had the guts to ask anybody else because you might actually know the answer this was one of those questions. So I'm sitting at a bar and a woman next to me says, hey, you're that hunter guy. I'm like, yeah, this is the bar I hang out at a lot. So people know who I am. I was just on the beach the other day and I was wondering about seaweed. Seaweed, what do you want to know? Well, isn't seaweed poisonous? And I had to laugh because, you know, really? seaweed's poisonous. Like who the hell told you, who said seaweed is poisonous? It's ridiculous. It's you know, it's it's a crazy question because it's like, you know, how many seaweed poisonings have we heard in the, You know, ever? You haven't because it doesn't happen. In fact, it's the opposite. All seaweeds in North America are safe to eat. Now, you heard the pause in my voice. And what that means is, yeah, none are going to kill you and none are going to send you to the hospital. There are a couple that have a little bit of sulfuric acid in their makeup. And they are so sort of acidically toxicy, bittery. The second you eat one, you're gonna like, Muh! and you're gonna spit it out. So, and that's only one seaweed that on the entire Pacific coast, and there's a similar one on the Atlantic coast. But that's one variety out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of varieties of seaweed. Now that I've given you the green light, what does that mean? Well, that means that all of them are in fact edible. Not all of them are delicious. There is a very common seaweed on the Pacific coast called. Feather boa kelp, uh, which actually does sort of look like if Davy Jones's girlfriend was wearing a, a boa, it would look like that. I mean, it's this crazy, funny looking, you know, seaweed. But you see it a lot in Northern California, and it's just, it's just not good. It's too tough. Uh, you might be able to use it for flavoring, but it's just not something you really want to pick. But everything else has really interesting uses, and I will be the first to tell you that I am not the end-all-be-all expert on seaweeds. But I do know that they are excellent as something to collect, clean, dry, and throw into your fish stock or your crab stock or your shrimp stock. They bolster the briny flavor of of what you really want in in an oceanic kind of stock like that. And and guess what? If you don't have shrimp, if you don't have crabs, if you don't have fish, but you want a kind of a umami-rich sort of briny stock... Straight-up seaweed will work. That's the basis of the Japanese dashi, which is a kind of a stock that they will do with kombu, which is just bulk kelp, and shaved, dried, salted bonito. That's a very, very simple stock that is a basis of Japanese cuisine, and, and you can do it at home if you want. Others are really good in salads, and here is the first of two things you need to know if you're going to collect your own seaweed. The first is in California at least, and I believe this is true in Washington and Oregon, I am not sure if it is the case anywhere else, but you do need a fishing license. And if you don't have a fishing license and you get caught picking seaweed, you can get a, you can get busted. And nobody wants to get busted for seaweed because it's kind of embarrassing. So get your fishing license, which you should have anyway, because if you're out at low tide gathering seaweed, you're going to want to pick mussels, right? You're going to want to dig clams, right? You know, you want to pick up a crab if you find one, right? And if you don't have a fishing license, you can't do any of that. So just get your fishing license and you're good to go. If you're in the East Coast or somewhere where you don't need a license, be cognizant of the resource. Because here's the second thing with, with seaweed. You need to know that you never pull seaweed off of wherever it is holding. That will kill it. And you don't want to kill it because you just like a farmer, you don't want to eat your seed corn. So what you do is you take a knife or a pair of scissors and you find where the seaweed is, is attaching and you clip it. You clip it about an inch or uh, even a half inch sometimes above where it is holding on. And that is called the hold fast. If you do that, the seaweed will regrow. And then you can go back there in a couple of months and you can pick the same seaweed over and over and over again. Now, there's another kind of seaweed that um, you can pick, at least in the Pacific, bull kelp and sea palm. So sea palm is, it looks pretty much like an oceanic palm. Uh, It's very small. I mean, maybe the stalk is about as long as your forearm and it's got, you know, a little ball on the end of it and lots and lots of sort of frondy things. It looks kind of like a palm tree. Now, in California, at least, that is illegal to cut off a rock. So never do that. If, however, it washes ashore, it's fair game. Same thing goes with bull kelp, the giant kelp beds that we all fish off of and catch, you know, kelp bass and sea bass and rockfish and things. You can't cut those. That's illegal. But it washes up on shore all the time. If you want to go and get some, go after a storm. Because when it washes ashore and you catch it fresh, you know, even a day after if it's nice and cool, those huge long tubes that look like a gigantic... Bullwhip. They're hollow. And what's more, they make some of the best pickles you'll ever eat. If you ever are interested in, you know, kelp pickles, look it up on the internet. There's lots of recipes. I'm shocked. I don't know why I don't have my own recipe. I've been making it for years, but for whatever reason, I don't have it on the internet. I'm probably going to fix that as soon as I stop recording this message. But anyway, kelp pickles, really delicious. Um, other uses for seaweed, salads, and eh, that's about it. I mean, There are probably lots and lots of things that you can do with seaweeds that I don't do, but I generally do salads. I generally make pickles, and I will also use them as flavorings for stocks and broths. And there you go. The next question is about deer bones. And I'm surprised at how often I get this question. People ask me, well, what can you do with deer bones? It just seems really obvious, and that's make stock, of course. And I'm surprised at how many people don't really think about making broths or stock with their deer bones. And I think that's a shame. Uh, I actually wrote a whole column about it for Peterson's Magazine that should come out in a month or so. And I've written about it extensively on the website, which is Hunter Angler Gardner Cook. If you have not perused it, I highly suggest you do. And I also write about it in my upcoming book, Book, Buck, Moose. But here's the skinny. Bottom line, roast them, make a broth. It's not that much more complicated than that. Any deer bone will work. My preference are leg bones. My preference of leg bones are shanks and the shoulder. The reason is because I really, really enjoy bone marrow. And the best source of bone marrow in a deer or an elk or a moose is the hind leg, the femur. It's the biggest bone in the body. And it is the easiest thing to extract the most amount of marrow out of. So how do you do that? Well, even on any given old deer, and I didn't shoot a very big deer this year, but I was still big enough where you could get some arrow out of it. Take your handy-dandy hacksaw or sawzall or whatever kind of implement of destruction you feel like using, and after you have deboned the hind leg, you merely saw off the caps of the bones, the two knobs in the end, so you get that shaft, and then what I did, because it was a small deer, is I just stuck a chopstick right down the middle of it, and what that does is it pushes out all of that marrow, and it will be bright red. It's really quite of a shocking crimson. It's really kind of cool looking. And what you do then is you have to soak it in salt water, and you soak it in several changes of salt water. And what that does is it pulls all of that blood out, and you get the kind of grayish marrow. It's kind of pinkish, grayish pinkish that we all know from supermarkets or from restaurants. It's super easy to do. And it takes just a couple of minutes. If you got a good saw. Now, what if you have an elk or what if you have a moose? What you do then is you can still do that cap just like I did with a deer. But what's better is you then saw it into maybe three inch long cylinders. And when you do that, then you can serve marrow the way they do in restaurants, which are it's a lovely little appetizer where it's essentially everybody gets a cylinder or two and it is roasted and there are a little bit of breadcrumbs and salt on top of it. And you take a tiny little spoon or the end of a knife or something and you you scoop it out of the bone at the table and you spread it on toast. It's I'm hearing you now, like you're you're saying, ew, gross. Not a ew gross. If you've never had marrow, and I'm betting probably 50% of you haven't, marrow is essentially meat butter. That's all it is. It's super rich and super fatty, and it's just fantastic when it is roasted. It's my one of my favorite things in the world to serve on toast, and it's just, you need to try it. Try it with your next deer, and especially you moose hunters or elk hunters out there, the marrow on these big animals is priceless. One final word on deer bones. You do have to be wary of places where chronic wasting disease exists, because even though there has never been any evidence ever that chronic wasting disease transfers to humans, and that's a fact, there has never been any evidence ever that it has transferred to humans, prions, which is what causes chronic wasting disease, have been known to jump species. So the whole thing about mad cow that you remember from, I don't know, God, it's got to be 10 years now, 10 years ago when it jumped. Jumped species in cows and in in England, and they had to kill all those cows, and a couple of people got this horrible wasting disease, so everybody's thinking about that when they're thinking about chronic wasting disease and and I'm not saying that they're crazy either i mean it's it's better to be safe than sorry, so what do you do? what I do, and what I personally suggest now take this with a grain of salt because um, everybody has to make your own decisions when it comes to your own safety. But because there is no evidence that it has jumped species, and because that if this prion exists in an animal, it is most likely to exist in the spinal column. So that means everything from the pelvis through all of the vertebrae, the neck, and into the head. My advice is to use the bones only from the legs in those cases. Now, if I had a deer that actually tested positive for chronic wasting disease, I would probably throw all the bones out. But if I'm just hunting in a CWD area and the deer doesn't have it, I'm going to use, well, hell, if I got it tested and it proved negative, then I use all of the bones. But if I'm not have the deer tested and I'm just kind of playing the odds, I'm just going to use the legs because chances are, if that prion is existent, it's going to be in the spinal column. And that is my decision. Uh, It's a decision based on science and based on a wide reading of the data available, and uh, that's what I would do, and you can make your own decision. But either way, deer bones make excellent, excellent stocks and broth. We'll wrap it up today with a fish question. The question I get most when it comes to fish is how do you store them so that they're going to taste as fresh as possible days and days later? Well, the first answer is, first of all, don't keep them around for days and days and days. Eat them or freeze them. I mostly prefer to eat my fish fresh, but sometimes I have a really good day and I've got to freeze some that I can't give away. First thing that happens is as soon as you bring the fish overboard. Okay, so it's on the boat, it's on the end of the hook. Take it off the hook, bop it on the head, or cut its gills or whatever. Kill the fish. Don't let the fish suffocate to death, flop around, beat itself up. For food quality, you want to avoid all of that. So take a salmon. Salmon is a good example. I catch a lot of them. Fish comes over the rail. What we do is we bop it on the head so that it's mostly stunned. Sometimes that kills it outright, but usually it's just stunned. And then you pick it up and then you take a knife and you slash each of its gills so it will bleed out. Now, why do you do each of its gills? Well, the answer is because certain fish are bilateral fish and certain fish are unilateral fish. And and I frankly can't remember which a salmon is. But what that means is in some cases, if you cut one gill, the, that side of the fish will bleed out and it will be nice and clean and white or orange in the case of a salmon. Now, and other fish, only that one side will work. And then another fish, both sides will, will bleed out. So you're better safe than sorry. Use a sharp knife, cut both gills, put the fish head down in a bucket of ice water. It doesn't have to be head down, but head down is helpful for keeping any and all blood away from the meat that you're eventually going to eat. Why do this? You cool the fish down The fish dies quicker, there's less trauma, and the quality of the meat will be better. It will be firmer and tighter, and it will keep longer. True fact. actually happens. Now, what do you do after it's been bled out? Okay, well, you remove all of that bloody water, throw that overboard, and put the fish on ice. Unless, of course, it's really super cold. If it's really super cold, and what I mean by really super cold, we just mean about freezing. So, you know, when we're fishing for tautog in the North Atlantic or... Fishing for salmon in the really cold places like Alaska, you're, you know, you're in decent shape. However, if it's even 45 degrees, that's warm. Remember, fish are cold-blooded. So an animal, you know, like a deer, for example, that deer's body temperature is somewhere around 100 degrees. So when you put a deer on ice, say 32, that's a huge drop in temperature, and it's going to really slow down biological action in that meat. Fish lives in whatever the water it's in. So conversely, if you put a salmon that was swimming around in, say, I don't know, 40 degree water, and you put it on ice, it's 30 degrees, that's only 10 degrees. That ain't much. Your preservation effect and the effect on the biological activity of that that animal is pretty minimal. But still, it's a hell of a lot better than putting it in an environment where the temperature is above the temperature of the water that that fish was swimming in. It makes a huge world of difference. It pains me to see people catch fish and throw them on the on the deck and then just leave them there. It just I don't know why my fish taste terrible. Well, that's why you jerk. Bottom line: kill the fish, bleed the fish, put the fish on ice. You're good to go. Now, once you're at home and you've gutted the fish and it's all well and done, and in fact, I actually gut a lot of fish on the boat. If you can, if you're allowed to by your legal regulations, because it changes state to state and fish to fish. But if you're allowed to gut your fish on board, gut your fish on board. Because even though they're not necessarily hot, there is massive enzymatic action in the digestive system of a fish. Case in point, anything oily, like a bluefish or a herring or a mackerel, their digestive systems run so hot and so fast, they will burn through the belly of the fish in days, sometimes hours. So gut the fish if you can. As soon as possible. Get them cold, keep them cold. When you're at home, the last piece of advice I have for you is no matter what condition the fish is in, put it on ice in the refrigerator. Remember what I just talked about. The body temperature of a fish is its ambient temperature. So maybe it's 40, maybe it's 50, maybe it's 60 degrees. Putting them in a 38 degree refrigerator is not that huge a drop in temperature adding the ice gives you a few more degrees gets you a little bit farther down and it gives you a day or two days more life on your fish so there you go bop it on the head bleed it out put it on ice gut it if you can and when you get home put it on ice in the refrigerator that's the long and short of it thanks a lot for joining hunt gather talk and keep those questions rolling in i love answering them because guess what When I don't know the answer, it gives me the opportunity to go and research it, and then I become smarter, I get a chance to tell you guys some stuff, and we all become better hunters, anglers, gardeners, and cooks. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.